Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We welcome today Michael Blakemore, who, among other credits, is the only director ever to win two Tony Awards in the same Tony ceremonies, one for a play, which was Copenhagen, and one for a musical, as best direction of a musical, Kiss Me Kate. For many years before that, though, Michael, who hails from Australia, was first an actor and then a director, worked for many years on the West End of London, and has been doing a number of shows here in the States, including the two I just mentioned, as well as a current uh, show, which is called Democracy, the eighth time that you've worked with Michael Frayn, the writer of that show. Is that basically I think, correct? I think it's eight. We, we, we had a, a misunderstanding. I think he said eight and I said seven, but I think it is eight. We we did we worked on a translation a, a, a brilliant translation of Uncle Vanya uh-huh. with Imelda Staunton who of course is now a major star playing Sonia and really giving a, the definitive performance and Michael Gambon and Jonathan Price as Astroff as uh, Vanya and Astroff respectively and so. uh, Democracy playing here in New York has just passed its one hundredth performance that's which right puts it into triple digits so congratulations on that thank you very much was that a challenge for you I know you had worked with Michael Frayn before but I've heard he doesn't give an awful lot of stage directions in, in the scripts that he prepares was that a challenge for you then to interpret what he was thinking uh, well we, we've got a method now uh-huh. after eight collaborations we've got a method of working and uh, Michael uh, in his later plays particularly gets rid of all stage directions because I think he wants to leave something to the director and to let the the script rest upon its verbal content. I read a quote from you saying that it's frustrating sometimes to be the first director of a play because nobody, I'm paraphrasing of course, because people don't realize they're seeing an interpretation. They think they're seeing exactly what the author said it should be. That's absolutely right. And I, I hope that my interpretations are what the author intended it should be, but it's not, nevertheless an interpretation. But, but of course, uh, critics, never having seen a previous production, just think they're seeing the play, but, of course, they're not, actually. They're seeing it realized through certain actors, a director, certain designers. When Michael Frayn was writing Democracy, did he know that you would be directing it? Well, I, I know that his his plays come my way, right? Uh, and our process is he, he he the first person who sees his plays is his wife, Claire Tomlin, uh-huh. and then I'm the next, and I read it, and then uh, we have long sessions together talking about it, and I ask him to read the play to me, because if he's reading, he he he's got to think about he can't think about it. If I'm listening, I can do all the thinking, and then I simply ask him dumb questions. Mm-hmm. to try and get into his mind. I want to get inside his head and see really what he in, intended with this particular play. Working on this number of plays together, I would imagine you're already quite well inside his head in terms of the way he thinks, or is it different from one play to the next? Well, his plays are so particular in their subject matter. I mean, I, obviously there are similarities uh, in his conception of, of how he wants to see a play on stage with Copenhagen and democracy. 
But the subject matter is so different and what they say is different that uh, really it's starting from scratch. Well, it's always sort of startling to realize that the, certainly his, his most recent plays, uh, Copenhagen and, and Democracy, which are so serious and based in history, and of course to think that this is from the same mind of the man who gave us Noises Off, which is so fiendishly <laughs> clever and, and intricate and and just laugh out loud funny. But there's something that I pointed out to Michael that he, he, he hadn't noticed but that in both uh, Noises Off and Copenhagen, there is a similar structure. In, all play, in, in both plays, an incident is visited. In the case of Copenhagen, it's Heisenberg's visit to the Boers when he brought up this matter about which they disagreed afterwards. And it is, ex- it is examined in the first act. And they don't reach any conclusion about it, or satisfactory conclusion. The event is repeated to try and get closer to the actual truth of it. It doesn't yield what they want. And then at the very end of the play, it is revisited for a third time. Now, in Noises Off, you have Act One of the farce played as it should be, or as as they hope it will be. In the second act, you have it played but seen from the back of the set, if you remember, with a a fictional audience upstage. Sure, as things are not going so easily. Exactly. And then in the third act, you get the same act after it's been on tour for some time. It has fallen apart. And fallen apart. So in, in, in a sense, the two plays in the ingenuity of their structure are very similar. And w- what was the reaction when you pointed out to him that, that he'd done this? Oh, he just laughed and said, oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> he, he had not realized it himself? I don't think he had, no. I don't think he had. <laughs> like the nose on his face was obvious, but yeah, he didn't know. Exactly. <laughs> now, in the case of uh, democracy, which for our audience, we should just point out, is the story of the West German Chancellor Willy Brandt and Gunther Guillaume, who turns out to be an East German spy who has infiltrated himself into Willy Brandt's government and his cabinet, become his very close personal assistant. Right. Uh, and that's a very quick synopsis. Any similarities there to any other work Frain had done in the past? Uh, no, I don't suppose there is, except the totally unpredictable nature of events. I mean, in, a, in one sense, having an East German spy close to you seems like a catastrophe. Actually, in a way, it was a blessing, historically, because Brandt was trying to forge some sort of rapprochement with East Germany. And the East Germans were, understandably, very suspicious of the West, and the West were very suspicious of the East. But because they had a spy close to Willy Brandt, who was reporting back to East Germany, no, this man is sincere, the East Germany's Germans believed him, and the rapprochement came about. So it was actually advantageous. It was advantageous. Now, as you hmm. talk about this history, certainly, I have to say, in America... I don't think people are were that familiar with the intricacy of these politics at the time that they were happening, and certainly it's now at some distance. Is this a story that is more was more familiar in Europe? Is it something that really had already become part of the historic record, and then everybody had to go back and refresh themselves about what it was all about, uh, and as, especially as you approached working on the play? Yes, I think that's the case. I mean, I don't think that the English were very much more familiar with Brandt, except, you know, Germany is much closer to England than uh, than America is close to Germany. Uh, so, but it was similar to Copenhagen. I mean, most people, certainly, I didn't know a great deal about uh, the physics of, 
Heisenberg and, 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 and Bohr. In that case, I at least knew those names better. I'd heard of Willy Brandt, but I certainly knew Heisenberg and Bohr. Yes. Least the idea of it. This, this was even more alien, it seemed. It was. Well, but what Michael does is he educates the audience in the first quarter or the first third of the play. He gives them all the material they need to know for the drama to proceed. And I don't think you need any special knowledge to enjoy both plays. And how about you as a director? Did you need more than what he gives you in the play to work on these plays? I needed him to fill in uh, holes in my knowledge. But I do think if you're directing a play or acting in it, you can do far too much research. I mean, the, the, the material you need is there on the page. You need to get that into your head and that into your bones and your bloodstream. Uh, I mean, for instance, um, Jim Norton, who plays Brandt, doesn't look anything like uh, Billy Brandt, but this doesn't matter because uh, the, the play is its own reality. And Michael is as truthful as he can be to the facts, but he knows that he's actually writing a fiction. Now, Richard Thomas who stars in the show opposite James Norton, who plays Willy Brandt. Richard Thomas, of course, plays Gunther Guillaume, the spy, which to me is something I have a character for Richard Thomas, but he said it's just a juicy role he loves playing. Right. And I'm probably paraphrasing exactly what he said on this program several months ago. The show was still in rehearsal at that point. And he said something to the effect of, Michael Frayn did not waste a single word. There's not one superfluous word or action. And the direction of it is very tight and, and taut. And everything just is done for a purpose and moves along. Did you and Michael Frayn have a similar feeling about how a show about Germans should be written and directed in terms of efficiency, let's say, or anything along well, those I think lines? Michael has really uh, technically invented um, a, a new type of playwriting. And it derives oddly enough, I think, from movies, in a sense, that uh, he, he, he writes a, a scene never lasts longer than its usefulness in the overall story. And, in, in fact, Copenhagen consists of these very, at least uh, democracy, and indeed Copenhagen, consists of these very short scenes in which, however, you can't have scenery lumbering on and off mm-hmm. to change the, the venue and, and to give you other information. Well, to describe it, yeah. you're speaking of the fact that you'll have scenes where Guillaume is simultaneously in scenes in the government offices yes. and at the same time talking simultaneously with his East German operative. That's exactly right. And the audience very quickly understands that this is a kind of compressed way of saying there were actually two scenes. There was the scene with the Chancellor in his office. And then when Guillaume left at the end of the day, he went to a cafe and he g- gave all this information to his uh, uh, controller, uh, Kretschmann. But this is a very easy and compact way of doing it. And, and just, we, yes. I'm sorry. And Richard Thomas is absolutely correct to say that there's not a line, there's not a word that does not advance the story or give you additional information you need for the story to, to go ahead. And then did you basically parlay that in terms of the stage directions that you gave to the actors and the emotions and what they do on stage? In other words, the same sort of efficiency? Well, yes. I mean, having, uh, as I say, tried to get inside Michael Frayn's Uh head. And I also, when I first read a play, immediately have a kind of feeling for it. I sort of ask myself the question, how can I do this? How can this be practically put on stage? And that's often a scenic idea. But then having done that work with Michael, and we do it in a leisurely fashion over a number of months, you know, do a couple of days and go away and do a couple of days. Mm-hmm. 
Then I get to work with my designer and try to find a machine in which the play can happen. I didn't Frank Lloyd Wright, wasn't it? Or was it Corbusier? I said, a house is a machine for living in. And a set is a machine for presenting a play. And uh, with Copenhagen, we went through innumerable designs and finally got to the simplest design of all, uh, which also had members of the audience on stage, which was simply a circle and three chairs. And uh, in, in Copenhagen, in uh, democracy, I had a... This is very curious, the way uh, this works, but when I read the play, I knew it... Michael said it's on... His only direction was that it, it's on various levels with suggestions of offices and chairs all around the place. And I had a, a, a picture in my head of a, of a circular staircase going up from one level to the other. I don't know why I did. And we got permission from the, from the National Theatre to go to Bonn and research the Palais Schoenberg. Um, uh, and we, we went into the, uh, into, into the which used to be the, the uh, seat of West German government, and we saw the state rooms, and we saw Willy Brandt's um, offices and all that, and I said, well, where did Guillaume work? And they said, uh, upstairs, but you can't go up there, it's still being used as offices. And I sort of schmoozed them a bit and said, <laughs> maybe, maybe could we just have a look? So finally they said yes. So we left and we went up a circular staircase. <laughs> but the circular staircase was made of stone. Mm -hmm. And then we walked along and we went into this room with a very large German lady who, was, who, who, who told us that she knew Guillaume and had worked with him. We were very yeah. excited by that. Yeah. Uh, but in this room were all these shelves with these files. And, and it was very Germanic and organized, and the files were blue here, green there, yellow there. And I looked at Peter Davison, the designer, and both of us said, that's the set. That's it. That's, that's the set. It. That's yeah. the set. And I should point out for the radio audience, the set is basically two levels with a circular staircase. With a circular staircase. And you get the impression of files all over the place, filing cabinets. Uh, well, it, we have shelves right, with shelves. these colored right, right, files. Right. Yes. And it's a very efficient set in the sense of... Uh, very little on it, kind of stark and sparse. Well, it's ju uh, just yeah. desks right. and, and ch uh, office chairs on rollers. Right. And then we move the chairs around to make all the things that are required. Right. Like and, a, and the, the actors go between the two levels for various scenes yeah. and various expressions of That's movement. Right. Or whatever. And then it, it enables us, like a movie, to have a scene on the lower level end and immediately the scene on the upper level. So we, ha we needed a multiplicity of entrances so that we could c c keep the action constantly on the go. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's barely a pause, as I recall. No, there's not a pause. Yeah, it no, moves very, no, very, very quickly. Fast, yeah. yes. Michael, I'm very curious, both with, again, we, I seem to be pairing democracy in Copenhagen, but um, in both cases, these are shows which you did originally in England. And very often, for many years, we've had a tradition of if a show is successful in England, it is picked up lock, stock, and barrel, and some exchange is arranged with, between uh, British equity and American equity, and we see the show. In the case of both of these plays, you have completely recast the shows. You've not done them with English casts when you've done them over here. I'm wondering about both that decision and the process of revisiting a show, not just with different actors, but with actors with very different cultural experiences. Well, I've worked a lot in America, and I have great respect for American actors. I think they're, they're extraordinarily good. 
and they have skills that English actors don't have in the same way that English actors have skills that American actors don't have. But in the case of Copenhagen, it was about Danes and a German. And in the case of uh, democracy, it was about Germans. And there's absolutely no reason why Germans and Danes on a Broadway stage should have English accents. Mm -hmm. And I also felt that uh, America had a particular interest in Copenhagen because it was America, after all, that invented the atomic bomb and dropped the atomic bomb. And the agony of this decision is very much part of that play. And if I cast American actors, the audience would feel closer to the reality of that play and feel a greater responsibility, perhaps, for the, the implications of that period in, uh, in of course, you, at that time. Here in New York, you cast two American actors who are very well-known, Richard Thomas, certainly to television audiences in the Waltons, yeah. and James Norton for years on Broadway. That's right. Two and very for that well matter, known. Robert Prosky for years on Hill Street Blues. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. right. And, and uh, we, uh, well, that, I was previously talking about Copenhagen, but with democracy, if they were cast by American actors then uh, it makes it easier for the audience to Mm -hmm. see parallels between the German political system, West German political system, and their own. I mean, it is, it it was, there are problems because you don't have coalitions over here. You don't have, uh, you know, the systems are different. But uh, there are equivalents, surely, for Mm -hmm. the Vainers and the Brandts and the Schmitz Mm -hmm. to be found in Washington. You mentioned a moment ago that American actors have skills that some British actors don't, and vice versa. British actors have skills Americans don't. Right. What, what do you mean by that? What, what are these skills that one has, the other doesn't? Well, I think that uh, English actors do have remarkable verbal skills. Uh-huh. You know, they, they, uh, they're working with a language that they have been using for centuries. Which uh, they invented. Which they invented. <laughs> And Not those uh, individuals, of course, but... <laughs> the English, we're yes. talking about. <laughs> and uh, things like uh, the ability to correctly inflect the line. Uh-huh. Uh, American actors, uh, I think, are much better on behavior. You know, they understand... What I'm saying isn't, of course, true of the best actors in both countries. The, the mm-hmm. best actors in both countries are good actors. That's all you have to say. But I like the truth of American behavior. I like the way that they do go for something behaviorally true. Now, now we're talking about dramatic actors, but you, of course, have also done musicals. And I've often heard from English directors that the experience of casting a musical in England is radically different than doing it here in America. Do you, do you find that true? Yeah, I think the, the, the professional levels in America are much higher. I mean, I think the, 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 the craft levels in American musicals are the highest in the dramatic world. I mean, they're incredible. And I, I love working with uh, uh, American, particularly if they're good actors as well as good singers in musicals, because there's never any discussion of motivation. They simply know what's required, and they do it. Now, you are Australian by birth. Right. You moved to England roughly 1950 or thereabouts. Right. And I read a comment somewhere that you made that the formative years, your first 21 years, are what kind of define you. So you consider yourself Australian, even though you lived uh, in Britain for yes. many, many years. Yes. And you've worked for many years in America. What, as an Australian, 
do you bring to England in America? In other words, do you have a different perspective than American directors or British directors may have since you didn't grow up in either one of these countries, but now you're working in both? Well, I think Australia is a kind of halfway house uh-huh. between Britain and America. I mean, I was brought up very much in the shadow of an imitated English culture. I mean, hmm. I went to a school which was like a, an English private school. I, uh, the, my father was a doctor. He got his degree in England. In Australia, lawyers wore wigs, and hmm. the, the, the court of final appeal was the House of Lords. I mean, we had all sorts of connections to England. Mm-hmm. But we lived in a country which wasn't remotely like uh, England. It was very, very different. It was far more like America in its sense of space. Uh, and all the cultural influences that were important to me, like going to the movies or listening to radio and hearing Jack Benny and people mm-hmm. on the radio when I was a kid, these were all American. Mm-hmm. And certainly the movies were the big – I mean, I, we had access to – when I, in my adolescence, we had access to some great English performers when Olivier and Vivian Lee came out and with the old Vic and did Richard III and uh, School for Scandal and the Skin of Our Teeth. Uh, that really was the thing that got me into the theatre. But uh, uh, up until then, it had been Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy and mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath and all these well, wonderful I, movies. I heard that you initially were enrolled in medical school but spent more time going to the movies than, than going to classes. That's right, it's, absolutely. It's said. But you've brought up a name that, that it's worth pursuing, namely uh, Laurence Olivier, because you began your career as an actor. And, That's in right. fact, were acting, I read, in, in the middle range of the casts with, with people like Olivier and Paul Robeson. And yes, that's right. I, my, my, tell us about those years. Well, uh, I first worked with Olivier in a great production of Peter Brooks called Titus, Androtic, uh, Titus Andronicus, in which was one of Olivier's great parts. And uh, then later on, I did a season at Stratford. Uh, and Olivier came up to repeat a, a great success he'd had in the 30s, which was Coriolanus. And I, again, I was in that. So I got to know him, uh, you know, quite well, as well as a, uh, a supporting actor can, a great star. But he was very interested in the sort of young people in the company. Was very Certainly in Titus, was very enc- encouraging to me. Uh, and then, of course, later on, when I became a director, he asked me to go to the National Theatre, and I became... A, an associate director at the National Theatre and got to know him very well over the five years I was there. How did you make the transition from acting to directing? Well, my first ambition in Australia had been to be a movie director. And for my generation, everybody wanted to be a movie director. Uh, but how do, you, how do you become a movie director in a country with no movies, <laughs> which was the case in those days? So the theatre seemed the obvious thing to uh, have, attempt to do. And I'd done some acting at university. Uh, and then I went to England uh, after I got my first job in the theatre, which was as Robert Morley's publicity agent, got to England, and he, he, I said to him one day, he said, well, what are we going to do when we go back to England and we leave you here? What do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I'd rather like to be a director. And he said, well, my boy, you'll have to develop a great deal more personality than you have at the moment if you <laughs> want to be a director. I suggest you be an actor. Actors can get away with anything. So uh, he said, I'll write a letter to Sir Kenneth Barnes at the, at, the, uh, at the RADA, and we'll see if we can get you a place. 
And uh, that's what he did. And then I went to, to, to RADA and I did my audition and somehow or other I managed to get in. I think I was absolutely terrible. And I did two years at RADA and then I vanished into the depths of weekly rep in the most hideous parts of England doing dreadful plays. I mean, plays... Oh, tell I, us. <laughs> oh, dreadful plays. Or class-ridden 30s comedies with names like He Walked in Her Sleep and Almost a Honeymoon and <laughs> While Parents Sleep. Dreadful plays. And you had to do a new play every week. It was a great forcing house to, to develop some sort of a craft, but it, it wasn't a good way to learn a craft because all you did is learn, learn the lines and developed shortcuts to make it look as if you knew what you were doing. Were, were you uh, at that time, though, um, thinking about being a director still? Or well, I, I wanted to be a director, but in England, the directing game was sort of sewn up by Oxbridge graduates, uh-huh. and they sort of had it, had it all tied up. And I, you know, every play requires uh, half a dozen actors, shall we say, only requires one director, so right. it's, it's a much harder field to get into. And, but I still wanted to direct. And uh, I was given, I, I was playing parts in a Shakespeare season in, in Regent's Park in the open air with a very good director, David William. And the, I, I played mainly comic parts. And he saw some organizational instinct struggling to express itself with coarse comic business. And he took over the direction of the Glasgow Citizens Theatre and asked me to Glasgow. Uh, with a couple of very good parts to play and three plays to direct. And uh, it was a great act of faith. And I apparently directed them quite well. And then he left at the end of the season and the board asked me and another person in the company to take on the running of the company as the artistic directors. And then a great friend of mine, Peter Nichols, uh, had written this play about a spastic child which nobody would touch. And... uh, uh, he gave it to us to do, and it was a success. It came to London. When, within Having started as a director, within a, a year I had a play on in London, and with 18 months I had a play on in New York. And we should say that play is A Day in the Death of Joe Egg. A Day in the Death which, of Joe Egg. Which has been seen on Broadway three times, three over, times. over yes. its life. Um, you had a lot to do with the structuring of that play. Uh, yes, I, I, did have, I did have quite a lot to do with that. Uh, Peter and I had known each other very, very well, and uh, we were very close friends. And uh, we've had our ups and downs since, but we're not we're, we're friends again. Uh, uh, but it was a very, very difficult subject for Peter because it was so painful. And he began writing it as a conventional three-act play. But he had a couple of moments of direct address, one at the very beginning of the play, which was very, very effective. And unlike the rather pedestrian structure of the rest of the play. had some very funny lines in it because he's a brilliantly comic writer. But the the structure trapped him into rather boring scenes of exposition and various unlikely uh, circumstances. And I just suggested to him that he ought to use direct... Instead of sort of naturalizing the exposition, just tell the audience, just have people talk to the audience. And uh, then he went away and implemented this brilliant first act with this, the, the, when the, <coughs> the father and the mother of the child speak directly to the audience. And then, he had, then it was followed by two other acts, which, and seemed to me t- rather too long a play, so I suggested some cuts. 
and some alterations, and uh, that was the play that went on. Now, you talk in this instance of, of working with the creator of the show, but also of working with Michael Frayn when he was creating. How common is it for a director to have that sort of input, that creative input early on, versus being handed a finished book, a finished script, well, and saying, I, now, director? As someone who's done a little writing myself, I am very nervous of directors who come in and tell uh, playwrights how to write their plays. I don't think it's really the director's job. I mean, I think the, in the case of Joe Egg, I had been, I had my first child, Peter had his first child, who turned out to be disabled at the same time. And I lived with him through all that experience mm. and had, therefore, extraordinary knowledge of it. Uh, and I think sometimes you can work with a man your own age and be attuned on a generational level with him and perhaps remarkably attuned with regard to the subject matter. And therefore, it's possible to intervene in interesting ways. But by and large, I don't think directors have the right to say to a writer, you do rewrite this, do that, do this. Did it make a difference that you were personal friends in this case and also with Michael Frayn? Well, with Michael Frayn, I did uh, um, uh, some of his plays, like uh, Copenhagen, I would only raise points where I thought there was some confusion or some difficulty in an audience understanding it. Uh, and, and similarly with with uh, democracy, but I didn't have any effect on the actual re uh, any real effect mm -hmm. on what what was presented to me. In Noises Off, I did because Noises Off is a farce and it depends upon mechanical ingenuity, and it is possible to have a few bright ideas because the sh the play exists on a very shallow level of it, of farcical mm -hmm. invention. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, was, I made a few suggestions there, which I think, you know, added to the fun. We've been talking about plays, dramas, comedies, plays. Um, you have notably directed several musicals here in this country, musical comedies they're called here, I guess. Right. Kiss Me, Kate, for which you won the Tony. Right. City of Angels, you got a Tony nomination for that. Um, how different is it working on a musical? Is a musical basically a play with music, or is there a lot of structural difference that makes it more challenging as a director? Well, the thing is, it, when you're directing a musical, you get a lot more help. I mean, you've got uh, sometimes a choreographer like mm -hmm. Kathleen Marshall, who did such a brilliant job on Kiss Me, Kate. Uh, you've got other people around contributing to the mix, and so the director is a sort of general figure who is trying to get all these elements mm -hmm. together. But it's the same exercise. I mean, it's the same exercise directing Copenhagen to directing... Noises off. They're not different. In directing a musical, it's the same. You just try to get something up there that has energy and is tight and rings true when you hit it with a hammer. Does it make a difference to you then as a director whether you accept a play or a musical? I accept it entirely on whether I admire it, whether uh -huh. I think it's good. And I, I, in the case of City of Angels, I was sent this musical and I was told it's a musical about a private eye. And I went, God, that's going to be dreadful. <laughs> and it was called Death is for Suckers originally. And I oh. thought, what a terrible title. Mm -hmm. And I picked it up and then I saw the, the names of the people involved. Cy, Larry Gelbart, David Zippel. And I said, well, they're pretty good. I better have <laughs> So I sat down to read it and didn't get up again until I'd read the last word. And I, I really accepted that I hadn't heard the score, but I really accepted that on the book it was such a brilliant book and I uh, th that was a show in which I suddenly had a million ideas of how to do it well, it must have been challenging because you basically had a central character who was played by two different people right. one the real life writer of 
detective novels, the other the character that he has created within those novels. Right. And they're at, at, at odds with one another. That's right. Yeah. And, and, but I'd, I'd always wanted to do something with black and white. In fact, I had done a David Hare play using black and white in some sets and color in another, and I thought this would be the perfect way to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I, I was very excited about that. Then, then I met Cy and David, and they, they played me the score. In fact, uh, I had to go back to London, and they came over to London, and we found a rehearsal room in North London uh, with a piano in it you know pretty drab and mm-hmm. like the movies and mm-hmm. I was sat on a bentwood chair and uh, Cy then played his score and sung his heart out and I was I said at last I'm in show business well Cy, <laughs> Cy knew how to sell a song he did he did he was terrific terrific and it was one of the one of the most satisfactory things I've ever done I, I loved doing City of Angels because we were you know we were everybody said we were going to fail Everybody said this doesn't stand a chance. Why? Why do you? I don't know well, why. What was the? I mean, the conventional wisdom on Broadway can be very damaging at times. I know. But I know. Well, but, we were, but what was in the air then? I don't know. I think that that uh, that musical about Legs Diamond had been at the same theatre, the Virginia, and had died a death. And somehow we weren't going out of town, and we didn't have any big stars in it at that time. And there was just a feeling that this this one's going to cost a lot of money and fail. Well, you showed but, them. Well, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I also was very lucky to work with an absolutely brilliant designer, Robin Wagner, on that. You keep mentioning designers, so I wanted to ask you, in the same way that you've had sustained relationships with authors, uh, certainly with, with Peter Nichols, with Michael Frayn, mm. do you tend to try to work with the same designers? I do. I do. I, I work a lot with Peter Davison. Uh, I worked for many years with Michael Annals, and I've done a number of musicals with Robin. You have a shorthand, you know, and you know how... how, That's the nice thing about it. But one's got to be a little careful about it because you, it can't get too cosy, you know. And also you've got to take on board new talent and new people and new ideas. But I do like loyalty in the theatre. I think it it usually pays off. It's usually productive. We talk about City of Angels, which, of course, was a new show freshly created. You were the first one to, to deal with that material. You did um, Kiss Me Kate, which had been kicking around for about a half a century since Cole Porter's show was originally staged in 1948 and right. been turned into a movie. There have been other productions of it all over the world. What challenges did that represent? In other words, taking a revival of something that was very well known as opposed to an original work of art. How do you look at that as a director? What do you do to, to interpret that differently, let's say? Well, I, I took that on because when I was a drama student, the original Broadway cast, or some of the original Broadway cast, the American cast, came to England and it played at the Coliseum. And I thought it was one of the most uh, enchanting things I'd ever seen. So you, so you did see the original I saw the original, so to speak. I said, yeah, I saw yeah. it, and I loved it, loved right. it. Uh-huh. Uh, some 40 years later, I could remember nothing about it, <laughs> except that when Patricia Morrison said, I hate men, she tossed her head like that, and a great curtain of hair fell across her face like a proscenium, like a curtain in the theater. Uh-huh. Uh, and I remember a few other things, but I didn't remember enough to say that's the only way to do it. Uh, and then I read it. Everybody said the book was hopeless. Everybody said that you couldn't possibly have a scene where a man spanks a woman on stage. And I thought this was a bit... Bit silly. I thought the book was good. I liked the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a bit corny, but it's got it's got its own flavour. 
and we only fiddled with one part of the book, and that was the the suitor that Lily Vanessi has, who was in the original a senator, and we made him into a kind of um, General MacArthur figure uh-huh. to, to get a, a figure who was even more macho mm-hmm. than Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. The choreography, as I recall, was um, quite energetic in many scenes. Yeah. Uh, and Kathleen Marshall, I think, won the Tony for that as well as you winning for director. And the show also won the Tony as the best revival of a musical in 2000. So That's right. Very, uh, very, well, well uh, Kathleen did a, a terrific job, I thought. Tom, Dick, and Harry was an absolutely inspired bit of... I remember one scene, I forget um, which the scene was, the fellow was climbing from stage level about three balconies mm. high up the, the side of the, the theater, so to speak. Michael Briss, yes. Yeah, up yeah. up yeah. he went, yes. Yeah. Who, whose idea was that? Well, that was Kathleen. Yeah. And, oh, no. And, and what, what did Michael think of it when that was suggested to him that he had to do that? Well, he's something of an acrobat uh-huh. and a tumbler, uh-huh. and he, he likes all that. And he did a lot of backflips and amazing things in mm-hmm. the course of that dance. And then hauled him. So he, he, he it was sort of quite dangerous. Uh, but he adored doing it and got a huge round of applause every night. Now how, now, how did you coordinate with Kathleen, with her choreography? How did you as the director and the choreographer work together to create the finished product? Well, the, the, in that show particularly, it's pretty clear where there's dance and where mm-hmm. there's drama. And, there's, it, it's, uh, and uh, I, would, I would make suggestions, but by and large, she's very, very inventive. I was. I would go into the the second rehearsal room and uh, with a smile all over my face. Mm-hmm. She made my life very easy. I remember asking uh, Susan Stroman a question once about a show that she had both directed and choreographed the yeah. producers, and I said, you know, um, when you're working as the director or the choreographer, who wins? She said, the director always wins. <laughs> was that the case with you and Kathleen? If, well, if you had uh, a difference, let's say, would the director always win? Well, uh, Kathleen is quite a stubborn. Woman, uh-huh. and uh, but we fortunately we sort of got on. I mean, I I liked what she was doing, so there wasn't any any cause for uh-huh. a collision. And I in in the sort of musically staged numbers, things like um, the, our opening number, another opening, another show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had little bits of business to su- suggest that she was very sort of happy to take on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't dance a step, so I'm very <laughs> relieved that somebody else can. Mm-hmm. Michael, we're ranging very freely across your career, and it's certainly worth noting that you chose to uh, range over your own career recently by writing Arguments with England. Right. But uh, an autobiography, but that only takes you up to the success of Joe Egg. So your real breakthrough is is where, where the book uh, leaves off. Um, what was it like going back and, and reexamining all of all of those years, with the most recent being already some some thirty five thirty seven years ago. Well, I was originally commissioned to do a book about my days at the National Theatre, with first uh, Laurence Olivier and then Peter Hall, and I left under with, arguing a little bit with Peter Hall, and I didn't really want to revisit that at once because it was rather acrimonious. Uh, so I decided to go back and begin with a bit of uh, autobiography. And I found I, I so enjoyed and remembered so much about my younger self and felt that though he was extremely foolish, he was a good deal more pleasanter than I was and seemed to have a rather better time. Uh, I, I got up to about page 150 and I was still only about 27. 
And I suddenly saw the possibility of another book completely. I suddenly saw about all the years leading up to my first success in my late 30s. Uh, so I bought back I'd been given an advance from the publisher and I bought g- gave them back the advance wasn't, much, wasn't a lot of money and then was free to write the book I wanted to write and I also thought that uh, the, the people's early years uh, when they are struggling are much, it's much more interesting than success success is pleasant to have but from the, the point of view of somebody outside it's extraordinarily monotonous it's, and indeed, it's pretty monotonous to have because it's treading water. I mean, you're just just hoping you can stay in the place that you are. Uh-huh. Uh, often you can't. You go back a bit. But uh, essentially it's not... Um, what's a word meaning going forward? It's not... Uh, progressive. It's not uh, progressive. It, it's, it's, it has a monotony. And, and it also, inevitably, it's, it's full of name-dropping and all that sort of stuff. And I think, I, I think that's uninteresting. Maybe to analyze a production you're proud of is interesting, but... As a, a sort of life story, it's not. But we can all identify with rejection. We can all identify with struggle. And, and uh, we can all identify, we all be reminded of our younger years. So I decided to write it up to the point that I had my first successful production. But I also saw that I could end it by making a return visit after 15 years back to Australia. Who was the first person who you showed your book to when it was done, since you're among the first two who see Michael Frayn's plays when they're finished? Who did you expose? The, who, who, is, who was your sounding board for this? Well, I think the first person to read it was a great friend of mine, Robin Dalton. I wrote a lot of it in France, and uh, uh, I was in France, and uh, down there, and I just finished the book, and I said to her, have a look at it, will you? And uh, she used to be my agent many years ago, and she has a place down there. But my wife wasn't with me. At the, uh, uh, she was working on a... She's a designer. She was working on an opera. And then, of course, I showed it to her. But I think Robin was the first person mm. I showed it to And her. what are some of your both fondest and most horrific memories from that period? Anything really stand out? Well, actors go through an awful lot of pretty unpleasant experiences. I mean, you know, being an actor, you live with rejection. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some quite tough times. There are also some wonderful times that actors have that other people don't. But it is, it is. I mean, it's so silly to see actors as these fools who don't know, know what real life is about. They know what real life is about in spades. You know, they have, and they have to, they have to keep their courage up and go to the next audition. They are extraordinarily realistic people, and and uh, I, I think that. Uh, what occasionally makes actors seem a little bit foolish is the camaraderie they need to get the work done, about which they can occasionally be a bit sentimental. But I think, I think the, the, the faults laid at, at the feet of performers are to do with the work they do, not with the character of the people who, who are performers. And if you, uh, when a, a field marshal does a series on television and has to perform, he will display as much prima donna uh, temperament as any opera singer. Well, there are certainly the, the stereotypes, perhaps cliches, of the struggling actors having to wait tables or work in a shop somewhere just to make ends meet, to make enough money. Did you go through any of that when you were 
breaking into the business, so to speak? Uh, well, it's, it's a little bit, it was a little bit different in England. I mean, uh -huh. uh, there was much more work available of a very ordinary kind. Uh -huh. So I didn't have a lot of periods out of work. And we also had, in those days, in the 50s, we had the labor exchange where we could go along and get uh, unemployment benefit. Uh -huh. And you could just about get by on that. So I, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to ask. It's worth noting that in doing this book, you have actually at least somewhat fictionalized some aspects of your life back at writing about the same time that you concluded this book with, with your um, with your novel, uh, Next Season. That's right. So at the point at which the stuff was very fresh, you did a fictionalized version and then went back 35, 35 years later and, and looked at some of that. And told the real story. Yes, that's that's that's, that's the case. I mean, the, um, the next season, my novel is is dealt that material is dealt with in one one chapter mm. in in the book. So it's the same split as City of Angels, the real story and the and the story you might have liked it to be. Well, it may be, although the novel may be truer than the autobiography. I don't know. To paraphrase a line from a recent show on Broadway, do you still call Australia home? Do you live in England, France, States? What, what do you call home nowadays? Well, I, Australia, I think, but I, I live in England, and mm -hmm. all my friends are in England. I've lived in England for over 50 years, mm -hmm. 55 years. Do you go back to Australia much? I'm going back in a week. Because you're about to take uh, uh, democracy, democracy yeah, to Australia. No, I'm going to do it with a new cast with, for the Sydney Theatre Company. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We, we hear lots of discussion about English actors and American actors. How about Australian actors? Are they different than either the English or the Americans? They're, again, a midway between. Uh-huh. Kind of midway people. M midway, pe <laughs> uh, midway people, yes. So what, what will be your challenges then to do democracy in, in Australia? Uh, will they be different than doing it here in New well, York? Well, it's always different. That's why I like to do, do it with the with actors of the, uh, who are nationals of the country in which the play is appearing because new things are thrown up, you know, and those new things uh, the audience will recognize because they're of the same community as the actors. And uh, I did Copenhagen in Australia with a, with a very, very good cast. Um, and uh, it was the same but different. It makes it more interesting for me too. So in the case of Copenhagen or now democracy, any significant changes or is it pretty much similar? In other words, having seen it in New York, would I see essentially the same show with different actors or would there be some drastic changes? No. Usually, once I've done it, and I think I've got it right, with, uh -huh. with the American company, I said, look, I've, I've got a way of doing this show. It seems to work. Would you permit me to just give you the production? I don't want identical performances at all, but I will – We'll, we'll make far faster progress if I just give you all this stuff and then when, when you are rehearsed and you know your words, then you can start making it your own. And if you want to change things, my mind is open. Things being movements? Well, movements, moves or indeed readings or... Uh, Same words, just different way of reading it? Is that the... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and I think that if you are doing a play for the second or the third time, that's the way to proceed. We know here in, in the United States, some words that we Americans use will be different words than the British might use. Uh, we any, did a lot of changing. Any terminology that has yeah, to be Yeah, a lot of terminology, uh -huh. yes. We, uh, I can't remember anything. There was, was a lot that we changed. 
uh, because it, it, it would be misleading to an American audience. Wouldn't understand what the British term yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, I, it isn't. In, this doesn't occur in the play, but I mean, lift and elevator. Right, right, right. Yeah. Or truck and lorry. Or truck or lorry, yeah, 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 all those things. How about in Australia? Same thing? Well, I think the, it's mainly English usage uh-huh. uh, in Australia. Now, how about the Australian actors? Any different than English actors, let's say? No. In terms of temperament and abilities and capabilities and all that? Uh, no, there are fewer of them, but the good ones are very good. Uh-huh. Very good. Yeah. I, I want to turn for a moment. We're, we're talking to you today, Michael, on what is, is a sad day for American drama and world drama, which is the passing of Arthur Miller, uh, which we just learned of today. And you have done four major productions of Miller's work, including two premieres over in England. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us about your experiences uh, working with him and, in particular, those those new plays, Mr. Peter's Connections and The Ride Down Mount Morgan. Well, one hardly knows where to begin in talking about Arthur. Uh, I mean, well, I, I first met him when I did All My Sons, and he came over at the end of the rehearsal period. And, uh, you know, his reputation obviously preceded him. And I knew him, as most people do, in, in terms of his great humanist, humanist left-wing plays like um, uh, Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. And he, 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 my image of him was of, was of a kind of Jewish Lincoln, Mm-hmm. Uh, up there on Mount Rushmore with other, with Washington and people like that. I mean, he had a certain grandeur of mm. reputation. And the first thing that struck me about him, he wasn't like that at all. I mean, he, he was like that in, in as much as he, he merited that sort of a reputation. But he was uh, humorous and looked at you in an extraordinarily shrewd way, like a very successful, benevolent businessman. Summing you up, and it was quite different to what I expected. And he, I found him very—he was very, very social. The first night I met him, he said, "Well, what are we going to do tonight?" And uh, I said, "Well, go and see a play if you like." He said, "Sure." So off we went to see a see a play, and then he came to dinner the following Sunday with with uh, Tanya and and me. And uh, uh, he, he was—he wasn't. There's a sort of view of Miller as a rather grand humorless figure and that was not my experience of him at all I think his work is far more eccentric and unexpected than you're led to believe some of his, I mean for instance The Price has that middle act with the um, old guy which is brilliant comic writing, very very funny and get the right actor in that part and you're like, it's like noises off uh, and uh, certainly the ride down Mount Morgan and Mr. Peter's connections are very much at odds with what Miller is, what his plays are presumed to be. And his, he, as a man, he was like that. He, he had, obviously, great stature, and I think was an, an, a, a remarkable man. But there were many, many sides to him. Like... Many of the major American playwrights, uh, Miller experienced a period in which, at least here in the U.S., the plays didn't seem to be in such favor and in the, in the late 70s and in the 80s. But in England, his plays seemed to always be, be part of the theatrical landscape. Do you, 
Do you have any sense of, of what it was that always kept the English returning to Arthur Miller even when the Americans, for a time, and again, it, it came around again, but for a time weren't weren't paying as much attention? And, of course, attention must be paid, to use a That's right. bad quote. Well, I, I, I think that, that that popularity that Arthur experienced in England was very important to him and sustained him through that rather bleak period. But I think he was admired by the English because he was what the English want America to be. Which is what? Well, they, he, they, they like the, the independence of this man who stood out against McCarthy, uh, who wrote plays rooted in the democratic idea. Uh, or, uh, he, 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 and his uh, uh, unashamed affirmation of virtue as a quality. I think, uh, I think that's why he was popular. And I mean, America is extremely generous the way it recognizes talent when it arrives on the scene. But it's, not to, it's, it's equally savage when it removes that approval and you go into great periods of decline. And uh, it, it's very hard, I think. I mean, uh, uh, certainly Tennessee Williams suffered from this. Well, I, I speak of the great American playwrights. O'Neill yes. had that experience. He, he didn't really come back until after he'd passed. Yes, that's right. Williams had it. Uh, Arthur Miller had it. Edward Albee had it. Yes, exactly. You know, there, there's a resurgence in Edward's work over the past 10 to 12 years. But certainly, again, the 80s were a very, very bleak time. Bleak time. And it's, it, it's, it is really what I think culture is about to support talent through those bad times and not to wipe it off, not to uh, you know, get rid of it. So as we talk about talent in plays, obviously we presume whatever next comes off the typewriter from Michael Frayn we'll be seeing you working on, but are there, are there things you'd like to do or projects that are lined up that we should be looking forward to? Well, I'm I, I'm not. I'm certainly going to continue working, but I am also cutting down a little bit, and I just want to do now things I I'm really interested in. I'd love to do the life in England, and we we hope to get that set up because hmm. I think uh, I'd love to have another shot at that because I think it's Cy Coleman's best score, hmm. and we almost pulled it off on Broadway, but not quite. We are talking just a moment ago about some of the great talents of the past. You've been working with Michael Frayn, who certainly is one of the, the current great talents. What other great talents do you see currently working in theater? I, 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 that's a question I refuse to answer. I'm the grounds if I tend to get you in trouble with some of those people. <laughs> it'll get me into the ones, the ones you leave out. I'll leave out, yes. Well, we yeah. hope they're all listening to XM. But, right. Uh, right. <laughs> what, what do you think about the current state of, uh, of, of theater in this country, for sure, we look at shows like yours, Democracy, which has about a dozen or so male actors, 12 Angry Men, again, serious show with all male actors, even uh, I Am My Own Wife, the entire cast male in that case. How, how, how do you look at theater currently? Is, is it healthy, do you think? I, th I think theater endures simply because it's, it, it can always be done on the cheap. It's not always, mm -hmm. not inevitably done on the cheap. But it can be done on the cheap as long as you get a space and you get a, a, a play and you get a few actors who are prepared to work for nothing. Theatre can exist. And that's why the theatre endures. I, I think that mainstream theatre might be... Uh, certainly this has happened in England. 
I mean, so much of the most interesting work now is done in small spaces, like the Donmar Warehouse or the Almeida. Uh, it's also done, of course, brilliantly by Nicholas Heitner at the National Theatre. But the West End is suffering, and more and more the West End theatres are being filled with kind of variety shows, really, or little eccentric uh, well, well, for years, you know, people would say, oh, Broadway is becoming so commercialized and it's all big entertainments, and people would hold up the vitality of the West End, and now right. we are hearing yes, that's right. that, that, same, that same thing seems to be invading over there, at least the conventional wisdom. So you, you believe that is happening? I think that is happening, but I, the other thing that I think is happening, I mean, because movies are so potent, they're very hard to compete with. But the recorded dramatic entertainment is now becoming so commonplace. Everybody has a DVD. Everybody can see. When I was a kid, we used to go to the movies once a week. So we, were abs- we didn't know the language of film. So we're, it was an absolute miracle. We were spellbound by it. Now every child of 10 knows about close-ups and cutting and editing. and They know the language. And, and I think people are getting bored with it. I think, I think that Hollywood is in as much trouble as the theatre is. I think we're, we're sensing the limits of the film experience. And the, the films that are, do surprisingly well now are films that actually are much more like the sort of material you get when you go to the theatre brilliant movies like Sideways. I mean, Sideways was a revelation of what people really want. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want. I'm I'm often um, kind of surprised by looking at people in the audiences of theaters, especially children at shows, to see their expressions because they're accustomed to watching television or going to the movies. I often get the feeling that some of these children are in a live presentation for the first time in their lives. Right. And they look like they're just mesmerized by these live people up on stage performing whatever the show happens to be. Yeah. Which I think is kind of encouraging that maybe there is a future for people going to the theater. I think people will go back to it. I think they will get fed. They, they, are, they are getting fed up. I mean, I'm, I devour far too much television, but I've suddenly reached the point where I don't want don't want to look, look at television anymore. And very few films really engage me. I get restless. I mean, I don't think there's any particular virtue in the theatre, but I think what, what is true about the theatre is it's, it's a fair match between the artists who are doing the work and the scepticism of the audience. In other words, the audience can see they're just human beings, possibly at the, when the curtain first goes up, looking a little foolish. And the, or, the actors have to fight to win over the audience and when they succeed then they give the audience uh, a unique experience because they've it's an earned one well michael blakemore you have um, arrived on these shores from england you're on your way to australia now with democracy in hand to stage it in australia thank you so much for stopping to visit us today at downstage center thank you For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding everyone that all of these programs as well as the other media and educational work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. Thank you. That's a wrap.